Well, it's great to be back together tonight, and it's always a, a privilege to come out on a Thursday and be together, studying God's Word and fellowshipping. And if you're new tonight, uh, you probably picked this up already, but we are studying the letter to the Philippian church, and we've been slowly working our way through this little letter over the course of the school year. And um, if you if you weren't here last week, we actually broke some new ground. We got into chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be picking that up again tonight. So you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Now, if you've been with us over this study, you know by now that this little church that Paul planted in Philippi, uh, by the time of Paul's writing this letter to them, they were facing some significant challenges, right? Significant threats. It was a sweet congregation, a congregation that was endeared to Paul and Paul to them. They had supported him financially in significant ways throughout the course of his ministry, but now they had a number of problems. So, just, you guys talk to me for a second. What were some of those problems that you can remember? Okay, so we got some division. So we got some conflict brewing between the two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, and probably even wider in the church. Uh, based on that, yep, so there were some divisions. What else? Persecution, yep. We see that over in, uh, in chapter 1, I believe. Um, at the end of chapter 1, that there's, this church is facing some, some persecution from um, the city itself and, and unbelievers in the city. Yeah, so there's a, a threat that was kind of bearing down on them and the fear that was kind of rising up in their hearts around that. Paul tells them not to be afraid of their, of their, their opponents. And later in the letter, he's going to tell them to fight fear with a rejoicing and prayer. So yeah, it's another threat. What's, what's, uh, what's been, we've not really dealt with this one uh, directly in the text, but uh, poverty would be another, another threat to this church, another difficulty that they were facing. Um, you see that kind of at the end of chapter 4. So the point is that this church was facing a lot. And, um, and all these threats, what they all had in common is they were distracting this church, right? Remember that. They're distracting this church from what? The mission, right, the mission, keeping their eyes fixed on Christ. Um, they were distracting the church from knowing Christ, making Him known in Philippi. They were distracting the church from loving each other well. Um, and ultimately, all of this means that they were off mission, or they were in danger of becoming off mission in Philippi. And Paul wanted to address that. So that was his main reason for writing this letter. Well, in our, our passage tonight, we're going to learn of yet another threat facing this little congregation. You can probably figure it out based on the title of the message. Um, Paul was really concerned about this threat, and you could make the argument that he was, this is the threat he's most concerned about from the language he uses in tonight's passage. It was a threat that plagued almost all the churches that he planted at one point or another. And it's the, the threat that still plagues churches today, and we'll call that threat... The, the threat of legalism. Legalism. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when I say that word. Um, today, that term gets thrown around pretty loosely, haphazardly. A lot of times, people misuse it, and they, they act like legalism is any kind of striving to be obedient to Christ. Are you familiar with that? You ever been called a legalist on campus because you're serious about holiness? Um, that happens sometimes. Uh, they act like zealous striving is somehow incompatible with grace, and then it, that gets called legalism. So that's not really a good use of that term. Uh, but that might come into your mind. But probably more commonly, when you hear legalism, you may think of those Christians who seem a little bit, what word could be used, stuffy, um, a little bit uptight, maybe even judgmental. They have their standards, and they expect everyone else to have their standards too. You know what I'm talking about? They seem focused on rules. You know, don't watch these movies, don't drink, don't wear these kinds of clothes, don't listen to secular music, don't ever go to public school. Um, you know, they might seem afraid of worldliness. They might seem a little paranoid about, about the world or, or angry that so many people are capitulating to, to the world. And that might be what you think of when you hear the word legalism. 
But what is it actually? What is legalism? If you were going to try to define that term, what does it mean? Well, that might be something that you could talk about after the message amongst yourselves, but let me kind of give you some thoughts on this up front. What we're going to see tonight is that legalism is a danger of essentially self-righteousness. Later in this passage in Philippians 3, Paul's going to call it a, you know, literally a me-righteousness. A me-righteousness. A righteous standing that comes from my own perceived obedience to God and His laws. And legalism is any attempt to earn God's favor through my performance. Right? So it's the, the earning of God's favor, my gaining righteousness through something I've done. It's thinking that I can get into God's family by my own obedience and then stay in it by my continued obedience in one way or another. And really, when you think about it, Legalism is really just a form of self-atonement. Now, how, how so? Well, I'm saying, essentially, that I can atone for my own sins by my own obedience. Right? I can pacify God's wrath. I can pacify His righteous indignation on my own. I can appease Him myself in one way or another. And then you know what that leads to? I think I can actually do that, that leads to self-glorification. Now I have something that I can boast in, I can brag about, I can one-up somebody, I can judge others when they don't have it, because I've, I've merited something before the Lord. I have some basis for self-exaltation, because I have, a, I have something I can boast in, I, I, I have something, there's self-exalting pride in my life. So instead of this, okay, Paul wants the church to repudiate anything, anything that we are tempted to boast in. Anything that, that, that we're tempted to take any kind of false assurance in. Any, he wants us to just trash all of that and embrace Christ alone and, and rejoice in Christ alone, like we saw last time. That's because Paul knows that our righteousness outside of Christ is defiled through and through. It's filthy rags to God, but Christ's is not. His righteousness is perfect. Every motive that Christ lived out was pure. Every act of Christ done in, it was done in perfect conformity to His Father's will. And it's this perfection, it's this righteousness that Paul is going to say is ours in Christ. And that's what chapter 3 is really all about. It's this great exchange. And it's a glorious chapter. But for now tonight, we're going to look carefully at the threat of legalism and how to battle it. And that's because this was a huge deal for Paul. Just notice how animated Paul gets as he warns this church about the threat. It really goes with verse 1, so we'll pick it back up even though we covered that verse last week. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, it's, you can tell you kind of even how I read that. It's kind of jarring, isn't it? Like from verse 1 to verse 2. Kind of like, ah! You know, like there's three, there's three commands here. He's, he's, all, he's talking about rejoicing in Christ. It's like, yeah, rejoice. Yeah. Isn't it great? Look out! You know? And then it's, look out! And then again, look out! It's just like, whoa! Like what is, what is happening here? Paul seriously wants us to take note of this threat. Okay? I did a quick search this week, and nowhere else in all of Paul's writings does he repeat a warning like this three times in a row. The same warning. It's dangerous. He knows that if we fall prey to legalism, that the very gospel itself is threatened. It stands in the way of our reliance on Christ alone. 
and it threatens our joy. And so we need to withstand this threat of legalism. And Paul's going to give us two ways to battle it. Really, three ways, uh, if we include last week's message, which was by rejoicing. Um, but two ways tonight to, to battle it. Um, so we could throw that up on the screen here, maybe. Oh, yeah, cooking with oil. All right, two ways to battle legalism. And first way is by identifying the threat of legalism. First way we battle it, Paul says, is, is realizing the threat. And you kind of figure that out by uh, his repetitive commands to watch out. First thing we've got to do if we're going to battle legalism is we have to, to identify the threat that it poses to us. And he says that here in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So three times, back to back to back, Paul tells the church to watch out. And then he tells us who to beware of. So what's he doing? Well, he's essentially helping us identify the threat, you know, to kind of bag and tag these dangerous people. So this text raises lots of questions, okay? So who, who exactly are these people? Okay, who, who are these, these groups of people? Are, are they three different groups? You know, the dogs group, the evildoers group, and the mutilators group. Um, or are they just one group, with Paul describing them in three different ways? Well, as this passage develops, it becomes really clear that Paul's talking about one group. One group of people, and it's a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Now, there's a lot of background here to this passage. You're going you're gonna to figure that out as we, as we move along here. Um, but it's important to know that these people, this group, they claimed to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? Just kind of note that. They claimed to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They were Jews who had believed in Jesus, or at least professed to. But in addition to believing in him, they also definitely believed in the Torah meaning the five books of Moses, and the, they, they held on to the Mosaic law as a way to complete their righteousness that maybe you could say had begun in Christ. They insisted that Gentiles needed to do the same thing if they were going to be saved, meaning they needed to come underneath the Mosaic law. If they wanted to be part of the covenant people, if they wanted to worship and benefit from Israel's Messiah, then they needed to become ethnic Israelites themselves, and they needed to receive the sign of circumcision. They needed to submit to the regulations of the Mosaic Law. In other words, faith in Jesus alone wasn't enough. It wasn't complete. They needed a little bit more to complete their righteousness. And that's what these Judaizers said. Now, heads up, we're going to be in a lot of different places tonight. So we see a clear example of this over in Acts 15. So keep your finger in Philippians, turn over to Acts 15. So after the Lord had clearly been at work among the Gentiles, after he'd been saving them, giving, him, giving them his spirit, these, this group, the Judaizers, they crept in and they began to pervert the gospel. Notice what happens. Notice what they're doing in Acts 15. Some of the men came down from Judea, and they, that means they came down to Antioch. That's where this chapter 14 ends. They came down from Judea, implication to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, these are Gentile brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see that? Unless you're circumcised, these are Christian, quote-unquote Christian Jews that are coming down from Judea, and they're teaching the Christian Gentiles, 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul didn't like that. So, in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means uh, he had a very large argument, um, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, big enough deal to send them back to Jerusalem to headquarters, so to speak, and talk through this issue. So, being still on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, clear example there of what we're talking about here in in Philippians 2, 3, excuse me. Now, in Acts 15, what happens in the rest of this chapter is that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem decide that Gentiles are not saved by Christ plus law. They're saved by Christ alone. Peter, later in this chapter, Peter acknowledges that both Gentiles and Jews are saved only by the grace of Christ and not by keeping the law. Look in verse 10. He says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, that's a yoke of the law, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's he saying? He's saying, look, guys, let's be honest. Nobody's ever kept the law. Like, neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear that yoke. So why are we trying to put that on the the neck of the Gentiles? But we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Nothing else, right? Just as they will. So Peter, very clear, acknowledges that both Jews and Gentiles are saved only by the grace of Christ, not by the grace plus law-keeping. So they write an official letter at the end of this chapter, and they send it out to all the churches, all the Gentile churches, and there's much rejoicing that happens as a a result of that. Now, with all that in the background, let's get back to Philippians. Flip back over to um, Philippians 3. I want you to notice now (laughs) how Paul describes this group. It is very ironic and some of the most offensive language that he could possibly use. And that's because he's trying to make a very, very important theological point about who truly belongs to Israel. All right? So notice, how does he describe this group? Initially, he says, beware of the dogs. The dogs. Now, you might think, well, that's not too bad. I have a dog, you know. He's nice. Um, But Paul does not have in mind your sweet Cocker Spaniel here. All right, he... You have to understand that to a Jew, a dog was an unclean scavenger. This is not man's best friend. It was a slur to call someone a dog. But what's even more important here is that Paul's not just throwing out slurs, okay? A dog is another name that Jews called Gentiles. And it it wasn't necessarily derogatory. It just means that they're outside of God's covenant people. Okay? It's another name for a Gentile by a Jew, and it shows that they're outside of God's covenant people. Now, there's a really clear example of this over in Matthew 15. So again, keep your finger here. And turn over to Matthew 15. Look in uh, verse 21. Give you a chance to get there. Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, notice this, a Canaanite 
woman. That's a very interesting way to describe her. That means she is under judgment. Remember the Canaanites? Under judgment? That's an Old Testament designation of this woman. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Pretty good theology for a Canaanite. Um, My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And the disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. So he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She had great theology, actually, knowing that through the nation of Israel, the Gentiles would be blessed. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Definitely foreshadowing Matthew 28, right? When the resurrected Jesus would commission his disciples to the nations. So dog, my only point in pointing this out is that a dog, according to, in the New Testament, is from, from a Jew to a Gentile, is a reference to someone who's outside of the covenant people of God. This Canaanite woman um, in Matthew 15, good example. You could also jot down Revelation 22:15 for another example. Uh, again, symbolic use of this term of, of a dog who's outside the, the final city of God, Revelation 22. So a dog is someone outside of God's covenant people. So here, Paul is saying, watch out for those Judaizers, because in reality, they are the ones outside of the covenant people of God. They are Gentile dogs. They are claiming that you need to be circumcised to become part of God's covenant people, but that's simply not true. What a staggering description. But that's not all. Paul's just getting started, okay? Next, he calls them evildoers, or more literally, evil workers. Again, this is another staggering description. The Judaizers prize themselves for their good works. And they definitely did not think of themselves as workers of evil. In fact, they probably thought of themselves as the truly faithful workers on behalf of their Messiah. They're the ones that are really sticking to it. But here, Paul's saying that that's just not the case. In reality, they are workers of evil. They're trying to lead people to a works-based gospel, another gospel, a gospel that asserts righteousness is by Christ and by the law. And this is evil, Paul said. They are workers of that very evil. That's staggering language from an ex-Pharisee. And finally, Paul saves the best for the last, literally calling this group the mutilators of the flesh. Literally, it's the mutilation. That's what he calls them, the mutilation. What's he doing here? Well, the Judaizers call themselves the circumcision. The circumcision. Because, like we saw, they insisted on people getting circumcised if they were going to be saved. Paul says that a better name for them would be the mutilation. Because that's what they're doing. By insisting on physical circumcision, Paul says, this is, this is wild for a Pharisee turned Christian, okay? Circumcision, according to what they're practicing it, is the equivalent of mutilation. They're mutilating people. And that, by the way, was actually forbidden in Leviticus. They were advocating a false and idolatrous practice, like the prophets of Baal, who cut themselves and mutilated themselves to get their God's attention. That's what Paul interprets the Judaizers doing when they're insisting on circumcision. 
So what's Paul's point here? Paul's saying, be very aware, be very careful, look out for legalism. Beware of anything that adds to Christ's perfect righteousness. Anything that tries to complete it in any way. And these Judaizers, they might have seemed noble or righteous, but he's saying, actually, this is idolatry. It turns the true gospel of grace into a false gospel because it tempts people to find their righteousness in something they've done rather than in Christ alone. We'll talk more about circumcision in a minute, but let's think about how this applies to us for a minute. Last time I checked, this particular threat, um, thankfully, is not uh, bearing down on us in terms of the Judaizers. Uh, I don't see them running around telling us to get circumcised if we want to be saved. But that does not mean that we're not tempted toward the same insidious legalism. All right, I think there are at least two forms of this that we can fall into as a church. You might say, form number one, this legalism, is a legalism that says you can get into God's family by your own efforts. You can get into God's family, become part of God's people, by your own efforts, by your own obedience to God by your own performance. Okay? How so? What does that sound like? Well, if you think, you know, think about the, the, the Catholic club on campus and some of those kinds of things. You know, I've gone to Mass, or I've said the rosary since I was a kid. You know, that's things like that. They would say, most reasonable Catholics would say, we believe in justification by faith, but we just complete that justification by our works. Subtly, many Catholics will affirm their need for Christ, but they also think they're confirming their righteousness or they're accruing more of it or they're completing their justification by their obedience. And according to Paul, this is a perversion of the gospel and it's adding to Christ's finished work. Now this next one hits a little bit more close to home. It might sound like this. I asked Jesus into my heart. I made it public. I was baptized. Now, if we're not careful, these acts can become works that we perform, works that we rest in. I know they did for me. I was thinking about this this afternoon as I was writing this. Instead of understanding that Christ accomplished my redemption, that he finished it, his righteousness had been credited to me, instead of understanding that, I based my standing before him on something that I had done, right? Praying, walking an aisle, getting baptized. And when I doubted, which was often and frequent, what would I do? I would run back to my works. I would keep praying. I would ask him over and over and over again to get into my heart, whatever that meant. And I was believing, I was resting in the the hope that my prayer was going to justify me rather than the work of Christ. Since I had done these things, I viewed myself as right with God and I continued to live however I wanted. They were kind of like my get-out-of-hell free card, you know? And this was a form of works righteousness, the very thing that Paul condemns in this passage. There's others that, that, you know, we kind of trend toward. You know, I grew up in church and I was there every time the doors were open, you know? It's great, but not if you're basing your righteousness on that. Or this one, uh, you know, this is more outside the church. The good things I've done outweigh the bad things I've done. You know, talk to many people that, that think that way, or I haven't done anything that bad, not bad enough to go to hell. And this is an example of righteousness based on something I haven't done, right? But statements like these, they evidence that we're basing our standing with God, our righteousness before Him, on something that we have done or not done. It's a me righteousness that gets me into the family in one way or another. But the glory of the gospel is this. Christ performed it all when we never could. He was perfectly obedient on our behalf. And so Paul says we repudiate our false righteousness, all our prayers, all our acts, and we gladly receive his righteousness as a gift. That's the glory of the gospel. And he's going to blow that open um, in HD in the rest of this this. Uh, chapter in chapter 3. So that's 
pretty obvious form of legalism. Um, it says you get into the family by your own efforts, but there's a slightly more subtle form of it that often plagues the church, and it's this one, that you stay in God's family by your own efforts. That you stay in God's family by your own efforts. So many of us would quickly admit that we get in only through Christ. You know, like only through him, only through the gospel, trusting him, his righteousness alone, not mine. But slowly we begin to revert back to our own righteousness in the day-to-day. We begin to base our, own, our standing before God in, in the, the day in and day out on our own performance. And some have called this the performance trap. And I like that. I think that's helpful. It's like a trap. That kind of was, we get in this performance um, routine. And here's how it works. When we first come to Christ, we're full of joy. We're full of the hope of the gospel. We're thrilled that our sins are washed away. We kind of feel that we have this clean slate, that like God has forgiven us of our sins. But as we grow, the Christian life gets more challenging, gets more complex. Sinful habits might rear their ugly head, right? The things we thought we had just, Christ just delivered us from. And then all of a sudden, there it is with a vengeance. We become more aware of our impure motives. And it seems now that the clean slate we once had is defiled again, and it's up to us to cleanse it by working harder. We promise God we're going to change. We're never going to do that again, but we fall back into the same sin pattern the next day. And then we start shrinking back from prayer and from seeking God because we think He's mad at us. That God is constantly disappointed. He's just tolerating your sinful existence. You hope He loves you, but you're not sure anymore. So you read your Bible to show Him you're serious. You pray because you're, that's what good Christians are supposed to do. That's what Pastor Clay's been telling us to do. What's happening? You're subtly trying to stay in the family by your obedience. You're trying to appease God's anger by your own righteousness. And that's a subtle form of legalism that the church is often in danger of. It's kind of drifting back to that performance trap. Now, just want to caveat. Okay, look guys, our relationship with Christ, it is dynamic. And what I mean by that is we can certainly displease him, and we can certainly grieve him by our disobedience and our sin. Right? Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Spirit when we're habitually angry. We can certainly bring Christ joy. We can please him by our obedience. But if we're in Christ, if we have his righteousness, we're absolutely secure. We're secure. Our standing in the family of God is not based on us at all. We didn't get in by ourselves, and we're not going to stay in by ourselves. It's based on Christ and His righteousness alone. We can't get more or less in the family. And that means that we can't get more or less loved by God. His love is fixed on His children. And it's not because of us but it's because of our union with Christ. It's because of His Son. It's because He loves us that He feels the displeasure when we sin. doesn't mean He doesn't love us. When we dis- He disciplines us out of that very love. Again, it's not, it's not that He doesn't love us. We might feel abandoned because we're in habitual sin, but that's because He loves us and He wants to draw us back to Himself. There's no abatement of God's love for us. We don't stay in the family by our obedience or our disobedience. So if you're hesitant to approach God, if you are more aware of your sin than what Jesus has accomplished for you, if you view God as merely tolerating you instead of actually loving you, then you have fallen prey to this second form of legalism you likely think that it's your own efforts that are keeping you in, keeping Him loving you, and meriting something before Him. So there's there's the free air of union with Christ, um, that Christ has us. But if that's you, what do you do? Okay, Especially if you've recognized the danger of this and you want to fight it. Well, that leads us to our second um, way that we fight legalism, and that's by knowing your identity.
We fight this insidious legalism by knowing who we are, what Christ has done for us, and how secure we are in Him. Even as Gentiles. So look in uh, verse 3. So why should we watch out? He says, because we are the circumcision. We are. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is very interesting. What's Paul doing here? And uh, how does he help us with legalism? All right, notice Paul is saying to beware of these people who you think are part of the circumcised people of God. Beware of them. You should beware of their lies because you're already the people of God. You're already the circumcision. You're already the real circumcision, in fact. He's saying that what they're tempting you to try to get by works is what you already have. It's already yours in Christ. (laughs) Isn't that sweet for all the recovering legalists in the room? We've already got it by by, by what Christ has accomplished. So by implication, if we're going to fight legalism, then we have to know who we are and believe it. Now, I said this is super interesting language when he says that we are the circumcision. You might be wondering, okay, hang on, time out. Paul just finished making the point that circumcision isn't important anymore. Why is he using that then as an identity statement for the church, for us? What's his point? And by the way, who is he even referring to? Is it really the church? Is that what he's talking to? Who is the we? Well, these are great questions. Now let me answer that last one first. Who's who's he referring to? When he says we are the circumcision, he's clearly referring to himself and to the church at Philippi. Now that's interesting because even though he's physically circumcised as a Jew, he's going to say that he's going to tell us that he is in just a minute. Um, Paul's physically circumcised. Guess who's not? Philippians, they are not. They are Gentiles. So he's calling a physically uncircumcised people the circumcised. So what is he doing? Like, what, what, is he, what does he mean here? Well, Paul is not referring to physical circumcision, obviously. But he's referring to something deeper, more profound, to something the prophets predicted would occur in the very hearts of Israel. All right? So, let me give you a caveat before we jump in here. Uh, This might feel like an overload, because I haven't quite written all this out yet. Okay? But, um, (laughs) nervous laughter. What I want to do is I want to give you like a 50,000 foot view of how Paul, the Jew, Jewish Christian, can call a Gentile the circumcision. Okay? Does that sound good? All right. All the way back in Genesis 17, you don't have to turn there, you can just write it down. All the way back in Genesis 17 is when God first told Abraham to physically circumcise his children. Circumcision was to be the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It marked out Abraham's family. It marked out his family, his progeny, later would become the nation of Israel, and it marked them out, get this, as God's priest kings. How's that work? Because the only background that we have for, for circumcision in the ancient Near East is Egypt. And in Egypt, only royalty were circumcised. Like this, 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 this priest king idea that they're set apart to sort of serve They're gods. And so that's the only background, and that's definitely how Abraham and those against in this background would have understood this rite. It's marking them out as God's priest kings, which is a very significant theme. In other words, it marked them out as God's covenant partner. Why is that important? Well, because from the beginning, God has always intended to use a covenant partner 
to rule and reign creation. Remember Adam and Eve, given dominion. They were his covenant partners to rule on behalf of God, to mediate his blessing to all of creation. They failed, but God was not over. He said that through one of Eve's offspring, he would revive this priest-king function. Fast forward to Abraham. He is the, one of the offspring of Eve. And now he's, God is identifying the nation of Israel now as his priest-king, as his faithful covenant partner, or this covenant partner that is to be faithful. And as they were obedient to him, he would use them to then bring blessing back to the nations that are now cursed. Tracking? You sure? Okay. Because we're going to keep moving. God's going to use the nation of Israel to, to bring blessing to the nations and then, in a sense, reverse the curse of Genesis 3 to restore the creation charter. But some massive tensions developed. Just because they were physically circumcised, that did not fix the fundamental problem. They didn't just need an external circumcision, but they needed an internal circumcision, what Moses calls a circumcision of the heart. And what that meant was their very heart, the very core of who they were, needed to change. If they were going to become faithful to Yahweh, if they were going to be true priest kings who were obedient and would bring blessing to the nations, then God would have to circumcise their hearts. And this is precisely what Moses says will happen when the people return from exile. Look over in Deuteronomy 30. Actually, you know what? I have this here. All right, Deuteronomy 36, chapter 30, verse 6. So, Deuteronomy is fantastic for a number of reasons. But they predict, Moses, at this early stage, predicts that Israel is going to go astray, they're going to be judged, they're going to be exiled, and then God's going to bring them back in after exile, and he's going to circumcise their heart and actually make them obedient. So here's where he says this in Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That's the Shema. He's saying you're going to be able to keep the Shema when this heart circumcision occurs. And it's going to happen after you come back from exile. The, re the previous context tells us that. And the history of Israel played out just like Moses predicted. The people continued in unfaithfulness because, <laughs> Isaiah 6.10, they're fat and thickened hearts. Okay? Definitely know what he's playing on there. There's not, the circumcision hasn't happened. They weren't a light to the nations as a result, like they were intended to be, and God exiled the nation. But during this time of exile, the prophets made clear that God was not through. He was going to bring them back in, just like Moses predicted, and he was going to raise up a Messiah who would live and die for them, Isaiah 53. He's going to raise up the ultimate priest king, Psalm 110. And this Messiah would bring Israel back to God, Isaiah says. And God would give them new hearts. Hmm. Hearts that would have the law written on them. Hearts that would be filled with God's own spirit. This is essentially expanding Moses' original prediction for the circumcised heart, all the way back in Deuteronomy. So here are a sampling of those promises. And we're going to read them. What do we got? Jeremiah 31 and the verses. I didn't put those in there, just so you could write. But 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
Listen to this. I will put my law within them. This is a nation that's never obeyed God's law. He's going to put his law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this is ultimately, verse 34, end of verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's going to be a climactic forgiveness that happens to bring in this new covenant and new um, writing of the law on their hearts. It's, it's, it's in distinction to the writing of the law on the, on the stones in the first covenant. So Jeremiah 31 expands this idea of the, of the circumcised heart is going to be a heart that has the law written on it. Ezekiel 11 continues this theme as well. It continues to expand these ideas. Ezekiel eleven sixteen. It says, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, there's the exile, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I've been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. And notice this language, I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. So there's going to be some who don't experience this. Right? Because they're hardened hearts. They, they don't, their, their heart goes after their detestable things. Their hearts don't have the law written on them or they, they haven't had that heart transplant. So again, just pointing that out. Uh, Ezekiel 36 is another, another one of these key texts. So again, same pattern happens here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 24, he's going to take them from the nations, gather them from all the countries, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you, here it is, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And now here's some interesting data, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So what does, he, what does Ezekiel add? Not just a circumcised heart, Deuteronomy, not just a new heart with the law written on it, but a spirit-indwelled heart, Ezekiel 36. So, to review, Israel was circumcised in flesh, but needed a heart circumcision if she was going to be a faithful covenant partner, if she was going to be used to bring blessing to the nation. The prophets predicted this would occur through the ministry of their Messiah, and then God would give them their new hearts after their return from exile. This would essentially be signaled by God giving them His very Spirit to make them obedient. All the nations of the earth would then be blessed through the renewed nation in fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham. Jesus of Nazareth obviously comes as Israel's Messiah. We get to the New Covenant. He lives, He dies, and He rises, like Isaiah says, to restore Israel to God. And He pours out His Spirit on the 120 disciples in Acts 2. So go ahead and turn over there. We see this initial fulfillment here in Acts 2. So we've talked a lot about the Spirit coming, so we're going to just skip that for now. But I want you to notice this next interesting piece. Notice that there is an ingathering. Chapter 2, verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These are ethnic Jews that have come in from Pentecost, and they've come in from every nation under heaven. There's been an ingathering of sorts. 
Obviously, they, they hear the sound of, of, of the people speaking in their own languages. Peter preaches and says, this is the outpouring of the Spirit. These are the last days that the prophets predicted. He quotes Joel 2. He quotes a number of Old Testament texts and says, these are the days. And then he pins it right on them and saying, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this one you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And you killed him. Notice the very next verse. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Hmm. That's interesting. Heart circumcision. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, Jeremiah, forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, Ezekiel, gift of the Holy Spirit. For, just in case you missed it, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So He draws our attention to the prophetic hope. There, those texts that we just surveyed. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received His word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there's an ingathering, they've been cut to the heart, there's the reception of the Spirit, this climactic forgiveness of sins, and now there's new obedience in verse 42. And they devoted themselves, first time ever, for Israel. They're devoted. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And fear, literally, the ESV says all, but fear came upon every soul. That's another fulfillment. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Again, they were generous. That's another fulfillment of the law. They were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, never before done in Israel's history. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with what? Glad and generous hearts. No longer fat. Circumcised, glad and generous praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day those who were being saved. So, pretty clear, but in case you want more, slip over to chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, still Jews at this point, were of what? One heart. One heart. Huh. And soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they all had everything in common. Another fulfillment of the law. What is Luke saying? He's presenting the Jews who have believed in Jesus, and we're just scratching the surface. He's presenting the Jews who believed in Jesus as experiencing the fulfillment of the predicted heart circumcision. They are true Israel, not merely circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Romans 2, 28 and 29. But the converse is also true. Remember that? Remember that kind of negative aspect in the prophets? Of, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to be crushed. Unbelieving Israel, those who reject Jesus as the Messiah, have not experienced heart circumcision. Flip over to chapter 7. The end of Stephen's speech. Stephen has experienced his heart circumcision, but now he's finished. Notice what he says, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Whoa. Stephen saying, you've not experienced a heart circumcision. Predicted by the prophets. You're clearly in opposition. You are clearly not part of the covenant people. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you, he says. So the point is that they will be cut off from true Israel. So we might say that they might say they're Jews, but they, if they reject Jesus, they are not truly circumcised where it really counts. 
in the heart. And thus, they are excluded from the new covenant from true Israel. Now, so far so good. You guys hanging with me? We're getting close, okay? All this meshes with what we've seen in the prophets so far, right? But what about Gentiles? Hmm. And what would happen with them? So far, everyone has received heart circumcision that's already been circumcised physically. Right? I mean, like, generally. Just talking about the men. Okay? But as Jews, these are circumcised folks. The circumcision have already... They've already received that, and they've had their hearts circumcised now. It's like a both and. Well, enter Cornelius in Acts 10. He and his Gentile family are clearly not Jewish. They're friends of the nation, yes. They fear God, yes. But they are clearly uncircumcised according to Acts 11, 2, and 3. Because... The circumcision party criticizes Peter for eating, they say, with uncircumcised men, referring to Cornelius. So in this chapter, in Acts 10, in very dramatic fashion, after Israel's heart circumcision has occurred, right, um, in comes the Gentiles. God gives Peter a vision that essentially entails him saying he has called Gentiles clean. Remember, there's a sheep, unclean animals. He tells Peter to eat them. Peter's like, no. And he does it a couple times. The point is that God says the, the conclusion of that vision is that don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter doesn't quite get it yet, but then he says, hey, there's Cornelius, go to his house. So he starts putting the pieces together as this is happening. So Peter goes, he starts sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his family, and before he's even done, God pours out his spirit on Cornelius and his whole household. And notice the reaction of the Jewish Christians in chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, in other words, while he was still preaching, he hadn't finished yet, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers, notice this language, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that's talking about Jewish Christians, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So, this was clearly a surprise to the Jewish Christians. Why? Because nowhere in the Old Testament is it predicted that God would give His Spirit to the Gentiles like this. Nowhere. To Israel, yeah, we just read all those texts. But to the Gentiles, no. Certainly the Gentiles would be blessed, they would be included somehow, but not at that level. And especially, apart from circumcision? Like, they're not even part of, ethnically part of Israel. And they're receiving Israel's promised spirit. And the fact that God gave His spirit to the Gentiles before they were ever circumcised shows they don't need to keep the law in order to be part of God's people. It shows definitively that salvation is by grace alone through the finished work of Christ. If there was any questions still remaining, which I don't think there were, but if there were any, it shows that it's clearly the case. And it's this ordering of events that that in the next chapter, Peter is going to report back to the church because he comes under criticism for going to a Gentile's house and eating with that Gentile. And he says, look, guys. He tells them the story. He says, in order meaning here's how God chose to do it. God chose to actually pour His Spirit out before anything, before they were circumcised or anything like that. So God's clearly made a point. So then the conclusion, verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the point here is that God's poured His Spirit out on the Gentiles, and and He'll go on to say that God has cleansed their hearts by faith in chapter 15. So, sorry, I got you. I got a little behind on the PowerPoint there. Acts 10, you see Gentile inclusion for the first time. 
And then this continues to get built out in the letters, okay, of what's actually happening internally here to Gentiles and Jews, and it's all based on our union with Christ. It's based on our union with Christ and the new creation that Christ has brought about through His resurrection. So I just, I know we're going a little over time here, but I just want you to see this. We'll end this pretty much right after this is, is over. But I'm, I'm just kind of building this out for you, and we're going to keep looking at the implications of this in the future weeks. Colossians 2. Verse 11, Paul says, In Him, that's in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and, notice this, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. There's a lot there we're not going to unpack. But I think the essence of this is saying by virtue of our union with Christ, because of His death and resurrection on our behalf, that's what achieves the true heart circumcision. And this is nothing less than the beginning of the new creation that God had predicted would occur, that there was always the intended hope for humanity since Genesis 1 and 2, And Paul himself connects it with the new creation in Galatians 6. Galatians 6.15. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He's in the middle of making this argument if we go back to verse 11, he's talking about writing this letter with his own hand. It's those who, make a want a good show, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He's talking about the same group. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That's their real motive. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me. Same idea as we saw in Colossians 2. The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything now, nor uncircumcision. Why? Because the new creation's dawning. The new creation is here. And we are experiencing it by virtue of our union with Christ in the beginning now and in fullness when Christ returns. So, look, I know that's a lot of data. Okay, So what I'm trying to show you in Philippians 3 is that Paul is saying both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ alone that we are the ones who have received the most significant circumcision, the heart circumcision. It was predicted first in Deuteronomy. It was developed by the prophets. It was fulfilled in Christ, poured out on the Jews of Acts 2 and following, and now brought in, we are brought in to that covenant promise. We're already part of the true circumcision by union with Christ, by connecting to Him and what He's accomplished. And that's what he means when he says we are the circumcision. He's saying nothing less than that we are part of true and restored Israel. And notice briefly what he says characterizes this true circumcision. He says we're empowered by God's Spirit. Surprise there. He says we boast only in the righteousness of the Messiah and that we completely repudiate any of our own righteousness. 
Now, Paul's going to go on to blow this out in the rest of chapter 3, and it's going to be sweet. So I'm just going to end there. But if we step back, what's his point? He's implying that if we're going to fight legalism, we have to know who we are. We have to know our identity. We have to know that we are already God's covenant people. We're already his covenant people fully and finally because of Jesus. We can't add to that. We can't take away from the circumcision in our hearts. There's nothing else we need to be any more of God's covenant people than this. It's a circumcision made without hands, meaning it's made by God's own spirit. And it's irrevocable. And our only response is to glory in Christ Jesus. And as Paul's going to go on to say, to have the unspeakable privilege of getting to know Him, of being in full covenant relationship with the Messiah as Gentiles, of pressing on, he's going to say, to know Him more and more, of having the blessed hope of the resurrection from the dead and the glorification of our new bodies and the entirety of the new creation given to us. And he says, while we're here, we have the privilege of being used by Christ to extend His mission to the nations. We have been given the heart circumcision promised to Israel, and we have been grafted in to true Israel And that is so that the Lord can use us as true Israel to bring the Messiah's blessings to the nations. So knowing our identity then is a powerful, powerful antidote to legalism. And it fuels our joy just like we've seen here. We'll look more about this. We'll learn more about this in weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for some extended time tonight. Thank you that you helped the students be attentive. And I pray that the survey um, was helpful. But I pray more than anything that your spirit would take your words and implant them on us, write them on our hearts as you're continually doing. You've already given us the heart circumcision and we are thankful for that. We pray that we would become more and more obedient by faith, by the power of your spirit, boasting only in Christ and being used by him um, to bring the gospel to the nations. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.